Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording today's episode on Thursday, January 28th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, January 31st. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my two co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? It's going all right. Taking yeah, it- it's, going, it's going okay. I had a weird... Um... An anti-mask person accosted me today at the laundromat. Oh no! Oh my gosh! Are you okay? Yeah, I'm. I'm all right. Like she didn't hit me or anything, but she was very strange and really insistent. And when I told her to get the fuck away from me, she was like, got angry and defensive. <gasps> it was very weird. Wow. I'm wow, sorry you had to deal really with that. Really awful. Yeah very stressful and like in this day like at this point really like you're st- there's people still screaming about that which is crazy to me after this long anyway yeah it's awful i'm glad you're okay yeah other than that i'm fine that was just a thing that happened today wow okay well i'm glad you're good and we're here today recording all right so this week we will be discussing a new york times reporter making racist comments the impeachment trial, the second one of the orange man, Biden's additional climate change legislation, and canning in Indonesia. So to kick off today's episode, we have Jasmine with our local news segment. Jasmine, take it away. All right. So this story came out uh, today is uh, January, what, the 28th. And the story was written on The Daily Beast by Maxwell Tani, T-A-N-I, and Lachlan Cartwright. And it's about a New York Times star reporter accused of using the N-word and making other racist comments. So every summer over the past several years, the New York Times has selected some of its top reporters to serve as subject guides for high school students on trips to various locations around the world, operated in some instances by Vermont-based company Putney Student Travel. In 2019, so that would be two years ago, one of those experts was a man named Donald McNeil Jr., who's a high-profile health and science reporter who joined the paper in 76. Um, He accompanied a student group on a Times, quote, student journey to Peru that focused on community-based health care in the region. According to multiple parents of students on the trip who spoke with the Daily Beast, along with documents shared with the Times and reviewed by the Beast, Many participants relayed a series of troubling accusations to the paper. McNeil repeatedly made racist and sexist remarks throughout the trip, including, according to two complaints, using the quote-unquote N-word. Of 26 participants, at least six students or their parents told the tour company that partnered with the Times that McNeil used racially insensitive or outright racist language while accompanying the participants on the trip, which according to the Times website, typically costs nearly $5,500. The students specifically alleged that the science reporter used the N-word and suggested he did not believe in the concept of white privilege. Three other participants alleged that McNeil made racist comments and used stereotypes about black teenagers. I expect immediate action on the actions taken by Donald. I am deeply disappointed about the New York Times because of the comments he made during our trip. I think firing him would even be appropriate, one participant wrote. 
Not only did Donald say various racist comments on numerous occasions, but he was also disrespectful to many students during meal times and in other settings, another wrote in their review. I would change the journalist. He was a racist, a third person wrote. He used the N-word and said horrible things about Black teenagers and said white supremacy doesn't exist. Yet another student wrote, he wasn't respectful during some of the traditional ceremonies we attended with indigenous healers and shamans. He made students in the program feel uncomfortable with his remarks. I was really disappointed after hearing great things about his work. A Times spokesperson told the Daily Beast on Thursday, in 2019, Donald McNeil Jr. participated in a student, in a student journeys as an expert. We subsequently became aware of complaints by some of the students on the trip concerning certain statements Donald had made during the trip. We conducted a thorough investigation and disciplined Donald for statements and language that had been inappropriate and inconsistent with our values. We found he had used bad judgment by repeating a racist slur in the context of a conversation about racist language, which this is me talking. I don't believe that was all. I think he said the shit. In addition, we apologized to the students who had participated in the trip. Following the reviews from participants, Times managers were immediately concerned, alerting the paper's public relations shop and its publisher, A.G. Salzberger, to the alarming accusations. Multiple people familiar with the situation told the Daily Beast that an internal investigation was conducted into the claims and the top science reporter was reprimanded. The paper also reached out to some parties who complained to apologize for McNeil's behavior and to assure the students and parents that action had been taken internally against him. McNeil's racist remarks have come to light during a period of controversy for the paper. Its award-winning podcast, Caliphate, which is a podcast I had listened to a couple years ago, has now been debunked. Questioned about its Pulitzer finalist host, star reporter Rukmini Kalamachi, and her body of work for the paper remain unanswered. Last week, the Times came under intense criticism for firing a contract-based editor for tweeting that she had, quote, chills on Joe Biden's inauguration day. A longtime reporter at the Times, McNeil has won numerous awards for his hard-hitting and incisive reporting on infectious diseases including his coverage of the Zika and Ebola outbreaks, along with the AIDS crisis, and has served as a foreign correspondent reporting from Africa and Europe. Since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, McNeil has emerged as one of the paper's breakout stars and one of the country's most prominent journalistic voices on the pandemic. While many Americans were still seemingly unconcerned about the virus in early 2020, McNeil's reporting and a key appearance on the Popular Times podcast, The Daily, emphasized its severity and potential to become a deadly global pandemic. Earlier this week, The Times published a candid sit-down with Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who opened up to McNeil about his difficult relationship with former President Donald Trump. But, you know, in spite of all of this stuff that's come out about with these accusations, the article continues, the paper has been eager to highlight McNeil's work, 
According to a person familiar with the matter, his COVID-19 coverage is among the New York Times submissions for this year's Pulitzer Prize for Public Service Journalism. And again, all of that, I was just reading the article from the Daily Beast by Maxwell Tani and Lachlan Cartwright. Um, this story jumped out to me because I had just read a long piece written on Medium by writer Jennifer Barnett, who used to work at The Atlantic, where she describes on um, why she had to leave her career in prestige media. The, art, the essay is called, I left my career in prestige media because of the shitty men in charge and they are still in charge. Um, and she talks about like a toxic workplace, the misogyny and the bigotry that was allowed to basically thrive within what we consider to be a paper of records. So she wasn't talking about the times, but a paper that's like of similar reputation. And this instance kind of reminds me of that. Well, thank you so much for doing that story, Jasmine. That was, I had not heard about that, um, which I'm disappointed because um, I think that when there's big shit going on at big media uh, outlets, I think it's important for that to be revealed because I also, I had also like, for example, listened to that Caliphate podcast and I did not know it had been debunked. Um, at least partially. Oh yeah, that was a big thing. I missed that. That's crazy. I just pulled it up. It looks like in December is when they started reporting on that being debunked. Um, I mean, wow, there's just so much to process in what you shared. I also, McNeil, I didn't recognize his name, but I had definitely been listening to him on the Daily um, podcast when the pandemic was starting. Um, He was a big voice uh, around that time talking about what, was to be expected, what to, how to deal with that. And, um, it's just wild. It's wild that, um, I mean, but is it, or it's not wild, the article you just pointed out, but all the shitty men running the media companies, it's like, damn, <laughs> what year is it? Yeah, that's a good point. I think what you're saying, Emily, about, you know, these companies being ran by sort of the same voice, you know, um, they kind of, they have a way of covering up you know, their bullshit and not uh, being exposed. So it's definitely good to hear this stuff is kind of coming out. I mean, never good to hear it, but necessary for people to be aware for sure. Yeah. And I think it, it also, there's all this, you know, I know we have the name of the show and everything, but I personally think the whole idea of objectivity in journalism and in media is bullshit because everyone has a perspective. Everyone has a point of view. And this is a man who is known and has been writing since before the three of us were born about issues that are often very much racialized, you know, and he was reporting from Africa on things like Ebola and AIDS. And yet here he is traveling to a Latin American country being disrespectful to the indigenous people there, saying horribly racist things about black people that has an impact on how you view the things that you talk about in the news. But there's this, this way that people jump to assign this objectivity and unbiased perspective to particular types of people, usually older white men. And it's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. Like unless you grew up in an inside of a walnut and were not influenced by anything around you, like you have a point of view that's going to inform the way you talk about things. 
And, you know, the way that he's still up for these awards and stuff, I think it's a shame because like they mentioned in the article, a woman just said that who worked for the Times was let go because she said she felt chills when she saw Biden's plane land or something. Yeah. Can you elaborate on why she was let go? Is it because she was she wasn't objective enough when that happened? I didn't I didn't do a deep dive into that Mm -hmm. story but there were like colleagues of hers that were saying like she was wonderful but she was let go because people felt that it was partisan for her to say that oh god okay um wow wild I um I and you're 100% right about the biases that um, in journalism. And I think it, it also struck me in particular that how disturbing it is that a science writer would be so explicitly bigoted and biased because there's a long history in the world of science of white men deciding that, you know, they are better than all other genders and races in the world. And then, and then coming up with science to back that up. Right. Um, that's, there's a long history of that in the U S uh, Nazi Germany, like it's a, it's a very violent and scary and grotesque history of that. And so it's, it's particularly disturbing with that history to know that the science, right. It's a science writer, like who is the one, um, who has, you know, been accused of these things, done these things. Um, so that struck me in particular as well. Yeah. And what is this? How do, how do you discipline someone like this? Like they say he's been disciplined. Like what exactly does that mean? You know, a slap on the wrist or, you know, we're going to put you on the back page instead of the front page. Like what, what exactly does that mean? Right. I mean, not enough. Cause to me <laughs> yeah. that right. type of thing is disqualifying. Like he was with a bunch of what children, yeah. Let me go back. Were these high school? Yeah, they're high school students. So you're on a you're in a foreign country with a bunch of children whose parents have paid a grip for them to be there and they're supposed to be learning and you're talking like this around them. What else were you saying? And again, you know? exactly. Yeah. And in comparison, this woman lost her job for saying like one sentence about how she felt about something, right? Like who yeah. like the the rules in journalism about objectivity like the people who make these rules are, and the people who enforce them have a, the same, their own biases in the same way. Yeah, um, I did find a Vox thing about that incident where the Times is claiming, you know, that they didn't fire her over a single tweet. The journalist's name, her last name is Wolf. But it seems like there are a lot of allegations of an anti-conservative bias. And mm-hmm. like what she called something having to do with Trump childish. Mm. Um, her name is Lauren Wolf, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's like it's 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 so it's a rigged system, and I encourage everyone. I'll put it up on our socials, but that article by Jennifer Barnett really lays out what a lot of us, are, you know, as women, it's particularly if you're a woman of color or you're a woman and also marginalized in another way, what it's like working in these environments where it's like, it's one set of rules for the people at the top and then everybody else has a completely different set of rules. You know, it's like they can do all types of shit, but there's still the golden boy. There's still, you know, they're just too important to go without their voice, no matter how terrible they are. And they can say, like, blow smoke up HR's ass. And it's not a problem. But, 
you know, someone else does a fraction of that or doesn't even do something wrong, but because they offended the right person, then they're scrambling to find a job. So, yeah, I totally agree with you that journalists cannot not be biased in some respects. I mean, um, you know, especially if you choose and what you report on and, and, you know, how you put it out there. And the saddest thing is that this man has influence over this youth. He has influence over the people that he took on this trip. And, you know, they're going thinking they're getting an immersive experience and they're offended, you know, by one, someone that was supposed to lead them, which is, which is awful. Yeah. And it's like, what, what are you're teaching the children a lesson that it's acceptable and you can be a success and be that type of person. And that's the absolute wrong lesson to be teaching young people. You know, too many of them have gotten that message from other adults in their life already. Wow, that's awful. Well, thank you for bringing light to that story. Definitely something that uh, needs to be talked about more. You know, we can't keep, people can't keep being protected for whatever reason when they're making racist comments and just, you know, hold these seats in society where their voice is being broadcast on loudspeaker and they're, you know, talking in this way and offending so many people. So um, definitely a good story to bring to light. So with that, I think we will go right into our first musical break for today. Uh, We have a nice mix of music for you. And our first track is a throwback, a classic. This is Love and Happiness by Al Green. We'll be right back. Love and Happiness. Something that can make you do wrong, make you do right. Yeah. Objecting to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment, we have Emily up to the bat. Go for it. All right. Yes, I am coming in hot with the updates on impeachment round two. Okay, so earlier this month, Trump became the first U.S. president to be impeached twice. 
from a January 13th New York Times article by Nicholas Fandos titled Trump Impeached for Inciting Insurrection. Quote, Donald J. Trump on Wednesday became the first American president to be impeached twice as 10 members of his party joined with Democrats in the House to charge him with uh, incitement of insurrection for his role in egging on a violent mob that stormed the Capitol last week. Reconvening in a building now heavily militarized against threats from pro-Trump activists and adorned with bunting for the inauguration of President-elect Joseph R. Biden, lawmakers voted 232 to 197 to approve a single impeachment article. It accused Mr. Trump of inciting violence against the government of the United States in his quest to overturn the election results and called for him to be removed and disqualified from ever holding public office again. Uh, And a reminder that was from the 13th. So that was from uh, that quote was from before the inauguration. Um, And then a January 22nd New York Times article also by Nicholas Fandos provides an an update. Uh, Quote, Senate leaders struck a deal on Friday to delay former President Donald J. Trump's impeachment trial for two weeks, giving President Biden time to install his cabinet and begin moving a legislative agenda before they begin a historic proceeding to try his predecessor. The plan guarantees that the trial, which promises to dredge up the ugly events of Mr. Trump's final days in office and resurface deep divisions over his conduct, will loom large over Mr. Biden's first days at the White House but it will also allow the president to put crucial members of his team in place and push forward a coronavirus aid package he has has said is his top priority. And then also, and that's end quote, and also a note that it also gives Trump time to prepare his defense. Um, And we can talk about that when it's discussion time, but um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, in my opinion, for him to have that time. Um, And the trial is set to begin on February 9th. Um, And unfortunately, here is where we currently stand in the Senate. A New York Times article updated uh, yesterday for us to the 27th, because today is the 28th when we're recording, uh, explains, quote, a majority of Republicans rallied on Tuesday against trying former President Donald J. Trump for incitement of insurrection, with only five members of his party joining Democrats and voting to go forward with the impeachment trial for his role stirring up a mob that attacked the Capitol. The 55 to 45 vote cleared the way for Mr. Trump's second impeachment trial by narrowly killing a Republican effort to dismiss the charge as unconstitutional, but it strongly suggested that the Senate did not have the votes to convict the former president. The opposition of all but a handful of Republicans underscored Mr. Trump's continued strength in the party, even after his brazen campaign to overturn his election defeat, fueled by false claims of voting fraud, and the deadly assault of his follower by his followers after he urged them to go to Congress to fight the result. Senators could yet change their views, but for now, the vote signaled the likelihood that Mr. Trump would, for the second time in a year, be acquitted by the Senate in an impeachment t- trial, spared by loyal Republicans who were reluctant to break with him. It would take two-thirds of senators, 67 votes, to attain a conviction, meaning 17 Republicans would have to cross party lines to side with Democrats in finding him guilty. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky and the minority leader, mm -hmm, uh, is said to believe Mr. Trump committed impeachable offenses surrounding this deadly capital siege and uh, had asserted that the former president provoked the mob and had said he was undecided on the charge. Yet he voted with the vast majority of the party to uphold the constitutional challenge, which would have effectively terminated the trial if it had prevailed. His entire leadership team joined him, end quote. 
Um, so are we surprised? I mean, probably not at this point. Um, angry, kind of depressed by the whole thing. Uh, I would, I personally am. Um, I wanted to include a few more notes for anyone wondering what the point is of impeaching a president who's already left office. Uh, Katie Edmondson lays it out in a January 14th New York Times article titled, Why Remove Trump Now? A Guide to the Second Impeachment of a President. Um, and she writes, holding, quote, government officials, including the president, accountable for misconduct and abuse of power. Um, as one reason. And another, uh, quote, conviction in an impeachment trial would not automatically disqualify Mr. Trump from future public office. But if the Senate were to convict him, the Constitution allows a subsequent vote to bar an official from holding any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. And uh, that would be a big one, a big reason. So, uh, so yeah, so that is the research I did for that story. Um, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I you know every the the emotions that were coming out. You know, M McConnell, Mitch McConnell, saying you know coming forward and saying that he, um, you know, when when all this was first happening, he said that he you know I was reading somewhere that he said he believed that Trump had committed impeachable offenses, but then to to not vote in a way that aligns with what he said is just like the same bullshit, you know, different year. Um, and I don't know. I, um, how are you guys feeling about it? Well, first of all, I, I feel like I just really hope that as they go into this thing, they remember the vibe. I was always like concerned about them pushing it back because I feel like it, you know, it's old news now and, they try ways to use this time. I understand they want to give him time to, you know, get his counsel or whatever. But the, I feel like the longer they put it off, the less likely we are to have a conviction. And that is, that's awful because it doesn't matter what anybody says. At this point, we all know what he did. It was very clear and open. And if there's no punishment for this, then it's going to be awful. Yeah, I was really hoping for some punishment. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's punishment a really is light, but like. I mean, I mean, yeah, like I, like, you know, and he's also like, he's going off and setting up, you know, the office of the former president of the United States, like some fake office, um, which is not an official government office, um, trying to stay in power because he's a narcissistic cult leader who just wants to stay in power. Um, I, um, I do. So I mentioned it when I was doing the, the reading off the research where I do think it is actually not a bad thing that he um, will have time to prepare his defense. I think if he wasn't given that time, you would uh, it would take away from the perceived legitimacy of the whole thing. I think it would just fuel um, the the opposition's you know like um, their what their inevitable you know decision that the whole thing's rigged anyway. Or you know what I mean? I think I think giving him time to prepare a defense. Um, will only bolster the outcome as legitimate, um, regardless of that outcome, even though I don't know, if, I don't know if it seems sort of inevitable at this point that it's not gonna work. I don't know. I just feel that at this point, like giving, I don't, I don't know, I don't think that I really believe in being on the opposite side of Republicans being like, well, it's up to us to follow all the rules and everything because they don't or like that will make, because I feel like ultimately to these people, it doesn't matter. 
they will invent a reason to say that it wasn't fair. Like there was some bullshit about not wanting to impeach him while he was still in office. And then now that he's not in office, it becomes, it's unconstitutional because he's not in office anymore. Like, it's just really. Yeah, no, that's fair. Whatever the rules are, it's like, they're so beyond that. It's all just a show for them. Like they use the rules as a way to bolster like whatever bs they want to say anyway so i I really do not care about giving him time or being fair to him like right kick rocks yeah no i agree i think um i mean i i i see that point i do i don't disagree that you're right that the vast majority of trump supporters are going to see what they want to see i think that there are probably some um people who are in the realm of being able who are skewing towards Trump, but are, I don't know, are in that zone where this matters. I think where it matters that he is given the, the ability to defend himself. And, you know, I, I know what you're saying about how like they're going to do, you know, they're going to break all the rules anyway. So what does it matter if, um, if we break the rules or not, you know, but I think but it, there's is it a rule, though. Is it a matter of a rule, like how much time he has to get? Well, so I don't know if it is, but I think, you know, in in the sense of where in this country we hold, you know, the idea of a fair trial up to very high standards that not everyone gets I, the Justice Department, the, the, the way the justice system works in this country absolutely does not work for everyone. Um, but I think that it's still an ideal that should that it's it's worth trying to meet in all cases um and i think you know picking and choosing who gets to have that isn't a precedent that i like to set yeah but what is he what does he not have it's like being that he was in the office he was in like do you Mm -hmm. think that he's like unprepared or that there aren't already teams of people that have been working on how to defend him for this time i don't know i'm not a starting from scratch right now? I, I really don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't really know how long it would take to, to get a defense ready for something like this. I don't know if they need time to like interview people or what. I'm sure I mean, financially, they totally have the resources. Um, I don't, I mean, two weeks is also not, you know, that long of a time period. And also, again, yeah. they're also doing it to benefit Biden too, because it gives him time to get people in place um, to get his agenda started before this totally takes over. Right. Yeah. So that's also part of it. Like it's um, not a priority right now because of right. what he's trying For either side. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. It's like it becomes sort of philosophical at a certain point since it also seems sort of doomed, <laughs> which is really depressing because it's very scary um, the idea that he could run again in four years um, and what the the landscape of, uh, you know, militant white supremacists in this country might look like in a few years, in the coming months. It's all very scary because of the precedent that this guy set and has been slowly building towards not just on the Capitol siege, but le- the years leading up to that um, and what's always sort of been roiling in this country under the surface up until that point. Um yeah, I don't know. Well, we shall see. I hope it's just not a lot of cover up and time to waste, you know, so that um, they can find ways to justify anything that he says at this point. Because um, I think that, you know, the the future 
of us believing in our country again, because this is a process. We all have to believe in democracy again. I think all of our ideals about what this what this means for us um, in this country during this time is questionable right now. For me personally, I feel like if nothing is done, then then what are we doing? Like, what are we believing in this process for? Why are we allowing it? You know, it's important for me to see that something is handled and for our elected officials to to act with discernment, to act with some level of integrity for the people they're responsible for representing. You know, so I just hope that all of this time is not time for them to come up with some more bullshit or ways around this. But obviously, we need to see some action here. You know, we need to see something done so that we feel like that, that there's some level of morality that exists in right and wrong. You know, it's really important that at this point, people actually move with with a level of responsibility to their constituents and also to the future, to the future of this country. You know, all the children that had to go through what they've seen and teenagers had to go through all of that. You know, that's not something we've gone through growing up. That's not something that we experienced, not in that capacity. You know, we've definitely experienced some, you know, bad presidents and and bad commentary and all type of, you know, illegitimate leadership, if you will. But let's just hope that the right thing is done. Um, Give the man his chance. Give him his day in court, whatever, I guess. Let's follow the rules. But at the end of the day, just make sure that we set an example here. Um, And I think that's what's really important. All right, so we're going to go right into our next musical break. Thank you so much, Emily, for giving us that story today. Um, The next track today is a classic from Mary J. Blige. And this song is You Remind Me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
Uh, we are now going to go into our final segment of today's show, and I will be covering the world news this week. Uh, this story comes from abcnews.com, and also um, the author is uh, Riska Manawara, and there's also a pieces that I'll be pulling from an article on the BBC. Uh, the article is called Two Men Caned 77 Times for Having Sex in Indo- Indonesia's Ake. I think I said it right. All right, so here's the story. Two men in Indonesia's conservative Aceh province were publicly caned each 77 times Thursday after neighbors reported them to Islamic religious police for having sex. Dozens of people witnessed the caning. um, And it is the third time that this province in Indonesia has practiced Sharia law. They have caned people for homosexuality since the Islamic laws were implemented in 2015 as a concession made by the government to end a long-running separatist rebellion. The men, aged 27 and 29, were whipped across their back and winced with pain as a team of five enforcers wearing robes and hoods took turns, relieving one another every 40 strokes. The men were arrested in November after residents became suspicious and broke into their rented room where they were caught having sex. The Sharia court last month sentenced each man to 80 strokes, but they were caned 77 times after a remission for time spent in prison. Four other people received 17 strokes for extramarital relations and 40 strokes for drinking alcohol. The Sharia code allows up to 100 lashes for morality offenses, including gay sex. Caning is also punishment for adultery, gambling, drinking, and for women who wear tight clothes and men who skip Friday prayers. With the exception of Aceh, Homosexuality is not illegal in Indonesia, but the country's low-profile LGBT community has been under siege in the past. So when I first read this, I was like, what is caning? You know, I had never heard of this. Uh, It's a form of corporal punishment consisting of a number of hits that they call strokes with a single cane, usually made of rattan, generally applied to the offender's bare or clothed butt. Um, it's also been done on knuckles and shoulders, which is a little less common. And also they have done it on, um, feet. So like foot whipping, um, it's a age old practice, uh, definitely from the British colonies. And today caning has also been practiced in Malaysia and Singapore, as well as Brunei. So this is, um, a cultural practice, I believe under the Sharia law. However, this small section of Indonesia, um, after they had this break from the larger uh, section of Indonesia, has been able to continue on with this practice. Um, I had read a couple of articles that talked about um, non-Muslims also being victims to this this form of corporal punishment. And basically they do it in public so people can watch them. Uh, One of the articles I read said one of the men's mother was in the crowd and she fainted when she seen it. And the pictures are quite striking because you just see like this long wooden cane and the person's just wrapped up in this uh, white blanket and, and they just whip them, uh, you know, however many times that they have to uh, for the offense that they have. So um, at the time, the Akinese political leaders, when they made this law, they promised that the law would not affect religious minorities and would respect international human rights. However, it's become increasingly uh, strict and the Sharia police have been accused of human rights violations from all over. 
So this is me talking and not the article at this point. Um, I do understand that cultural practices are withheld um, in different countries all over the world for different reasons, you know, but I feel like something as uh, harsh as this in the public eye, it just, it, it can't lead to anything promising, right? Like if, if this is a form of punishment that's supposed to, what, knock it out of you or you know, I'm, I'm not sure what they're getting at. I think it's just an old age law that is a part of their culture. To me, seems like there is no benefit from doing it. Um, and it's really awful that these two young men are facing um, to have to do this, have to be on broadcast and anyone else in that country for things like drinking or, you know, um, adultery it's just crossing a line that I feel like it's, it's just way too harsh and it's out of control. I, I don't agree with it. And I, I definitely feel like um, if I had to witness something like this, oh my gosh, I would never be able to take it out of my mind, but just knowing it exists, it really bothers me. It gets under my skin for sure. Yeah. You, you hit on a bunch of things that were crossing my mind while you were telling that story or you're sharing that research, Teresa, I am, um, I, I do have trouble like finding the language to condemn the violence and um, bigotry in stories like this without using language that is, you know, xenophobic without using language that um, makes it sound like I feel like, you know, the U.S. isn't capable of its own, you know, horrible abuses because we, you know, we certainly do that on the regular as well. So it, I do have trouble Absolutely. finding that language. Right. So it, it's, it's tricky when we, we do stories like this for sure. Um, and, and also exa- what you were saying about corporal punishment and, you know, what is the, it, it's, it's just what we know today about um, psychology and, and what happens to a person when they undergo that sort of violence. Um, it is like, you know, it, it's just very, um, it's disheartening to know that, that this is the answer that people, some people choose to go to. Um, it, it has, you know, we know that violence like this can have permanent psychological damage on a person um, or long lasting, or it, it, it can, you know, turns out, turns out all sorts of um, really horrible psychological results. Um, so it is hard to hear it with that perspective as well, you know, Um yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not yeah. an easy, it wasn't an easy story to cover, but I think it, mm-hmm. it makes us think a little bit about, you know, how, what, what exactly is corporal punishment and, and just mm-hmm. the way that culture influences these sort of things. It's really challenging. It's very challenging. And and again, you know, it is, and it's like, I do condemn like the bigotry and I condemn the violence, um, it's just it's it's hard to frame that conversation without under you know without without sounding like I feel like I'm a better person than them right, right. which I don't want to sound like that either. I um, I'd just like to point out in Aceh, like this is not an ancient like caning people in this province is actually relatively new like it started mm. less than twenty years ago hmm. so it's not something that you know like it's not there's so many things where like even if it has been around for a super long time it can always change like it's not Mm -hmm. impossible yeah this is a recent like the punishment of caning is relatively recent and there are a number of places in 
the colonized world where mm-hmm. caning was introduced by the British like mm-hmm. in the 1800s. So it is now not allowed in the places where, you know, it was exported as a punishment. But, you know, there are a few places that they still have vestiges of like a colonial system of how they mm-hmm. punish people, including punishing people for things that were not perhaps seen as being wrong before there was a colonizer mm-hmm. that came in and said that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah. I don't know too much specifically about Indonesia, but I know like in India, like there's a history of that where a lot of places that have a history of there being like many different genders and ways of living as a family or as a couple or, or in whatever sexual situation you're in was normal. And then the idea that it was wrong was then introduced and then punished really severely. So, you know, I just, I think that's important to keep in mind that it, it it's not like a static thing that's unique to the culture, but there is a lot of stuff that was like imposed. And then some yeah. of these same colonial powers will now say, oh, look mm-hmm. at how backwards or yeah. whatever, that's not right. When right. if you scratch a little bit, like there's something else going on. Exactly. Yeah, No. De- totally. Definitely. And, it, and yeah, Indonesia and is not true. the only place that it happens as well. You know, that's just where the story comes from. Um, more, uh, yeah. A little bit more digging. There are some pla- countries in Africa as well um, and other places. So that's not the only place that it, that it is happening. Do you know that I didn't know this, that in the U.S. you can still get um, there's places where you can still get beat with a paddle at school. I did oh, not yeah. know that still like on the books here. Right. I, yeah. I God thought that that was in my parents generation, maybe. But there's people our age now. They're like, oh, yeah, like you I, we would still get hit with a wood paddle like at school by teachers. Like Catholic that school? Me. Private school? I, no, I it's not, not yeah, that's, I've only heard school. of it in that sector. In public school, is this like wow, middle America? I, it's like in, these were, um, in particular, these were black people in the South, and I think one of my friends who's from the Southwest said that it was a thing. Like there was like a permission slip, like where the teachers could give permission for the public school people to beat their kids. Because, you know, in, the, in this in this country, we don't have, like, a centralized, like, rule for the whole country. It's, like, right. one county to another. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. But, yeah, that's, wow. that's an aside. But it, that just jumped to my mind since we're talking about corporal punishment. Yeah, but I mean that, but that draws the connection, right? How this this sort of practice um, is, is done in different places, just under different names or different aliases. But, you know... Um, you know, not too far removed. Definitely. Did y'all hear about that couple to the black couple who it was a black lesbian couple and they moved to Bali in Indonesia and were like basically scamming. But one of them was talking about how like they could be so free, like as a, a non-hetero couple. And people were like, um, people that live there permanently can't be free like that. So representing it like oh, they weren't acknowledging like the privilege they had as Americans and having more status for that reason was why they could live that openly where they were compared to people that are in their own country, but they have to hide their sexuality because things like this are still happening there. No, I hadn't heard about that. Me neither. 
Wow, that's an interesting perspective. So I know that story was challenging, but I think it was a good conversation piece for us to think about all the variables. All right, so we're going to go ahead and move into our final segment, which is the good news. Emily, what do you have for us today? All righty. Once again, you know, are the looming, the existential climate threat, you know, apocalypse looming. I I like to highlight um, good news about that as much as possible. Um, So this story comes from a January 27th Politico article by Zach Coleman and Ben Lefevre titled Biden pitching a much vaster climate plan than Obama ever attempted. The article explains, quote, President Joe Biden is launching his sweeping assault on climate change with a much larger army of allies than Barack Obama had 12 years ago. A coalition that ranges from labor unions, anti-fracking activists, and racial justice advocates to leaders of Wall Street, the auto industry, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Quote, he's also pitching a much vaster climate plan than Obama ever attempted, with calls for trillions of dollars in new spending, along with efforts to make combating global warming a prime mission for the entire executive branch. Quote, Biden has tied his plan to an economic stimulus, a move that's drawn support from groups like the Chamber of Commerce, which previously opposed aggressive action from the federal government, as well as a raft of individual individual companies that are taking action at the behest of their customers and investors. And the new president is seeking to appeal to racial justice groups whose clout inside the environmental movement has skyrocketed in recent years as attention to the pollution that disproportionately affects people of color and low-income communities has risen. That's far different from the roster of national environmental groups with their largely white leaders and lobbyists who helped lead the charge for Obama's doomed cap-and-trade legislation. Uh, end quote. So Biden's new climate orders uh, add detail to and expand on the orders he signed off on on his first day in office. Uh, updates include the following. So a January 27th New York Times article by Lisa Friedman, Coral Davenport, which is a name I love, and uh, Christopher Flavel is titled Biden Emphasizing Job Creation, Signs Sweeping Climate Actions, and explains that, quote, the, dura- the array of directives touching on international relations, drilling policy, employment, and national security, among other things, elevate climate change across every level of the federal government, Uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, And the article goes on to further talk about the green jobs that he's emphasizing, um, talking about, quote, Mr. Biden also said his agenda would create prevailing wage job employment and union jobs for workers to build 1.5 million new energy efficient homes to manufacture and install a half million new electrical electric vehicle charging stations and to steal to seal off 1 million leaking oil and gas wells. Uh, Today is climate day in the White House, which means today is jobs day at the White House, Mr. Biden said. Um, The political article Politico article also said that. Biden uh, hit pause on all auctions of federal lands and waters to oil and gas companies, which is like, why is that even a thing? Um, and the skim, which is an outlet I like to to check in on regularly, explained that, quote, that alone could prevent 19 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which is pretty wild. Um, Politico goes on to list other things. He, quote, expands conservation protections for large swaths of land quote, create a new civilian conservation corps and promise to deliver economic help to coal-producing regions suffering from the industry's decline. 
Quote, Biden will convene a promised climate change summit with world leaders for April 22nd, Earth Day, and he's calling for a national intelligence estimate on the security implications of climate change. Uh, and quote, White House climate envoy John Kerry said in a speech to the World Economic Forum Wednesday that the executive orders will include directing agencies to develop a plan for eliminating public finance of fossil fuel projects. Um, and finally, a Washington Post article by Juliet Elprin and Brady, Brady Dennis and Daryl Fears uh, writes, quote, as part of an unprecedented push to cut the nation's greenhouse gas emissions and create new jobs, as the United States shifts toward cleaner energy, Biden directed agencies across the federal government to invest in low-income and minority communities that have traditionally borne the brunt of pollution, end quote. Um, and I know I mentioned that sort of focused kind of twice when I talked about that, but it really is important that um, the communities that around the world um, that that ha do are going to suffer the brunt of climate change uh, have already suffered the brunt of air pollution um, tend to be low-income minority communities that are situation, situated closer to industrial um, areas with like really shitty air quality. Um, so the fact that this like broad coalition um, is is coming at this, you know, makes me hopeful. Like I, I think I read somewhere the U.S. is like the number one polluter in the world. Um, and also, I just want to highlight like the myth of individual responsibility about climate change, like all these things about, um, oh, you know, if you just, you know, carpool to work more and you became a vegetarian, you specifically you, we can solve all this. But that's like a total it's, it's a distraction from like court companies that are just throwing so much greenhouse gases into the air every second that you like can't even believe it. Um, so the fact that it's coming from the top um, makes me pretty hopeful. Yay, that's my story. <laughs> I like to hear stories like that. That means yeah. good things are on the horizon. So hopefully. And, it, and that's like the second one you you brought to us um, about climate change with the Biden administration. Yeah. So this is good. I, this is really good. I Yes, I last week, you know, day one, he had all the, the fact that it's such a big focus, um, even amid, yeah. you know, the fact that. COVID is not pushing this to the back burner because it's not, it's still a big, regardless of COVID, this is still a big issue. Um, you know, the fact that Trump's bullshit isn't pushing this to the back burner is, I think it just really goes to show how much the, the activism that's been happening the last four years, like how this is not going anywhere and how much people um, are refusing to let this not be an issue of, of that importance. Really, it really says a lot about that. Yeah, you're right. Climate is such a looming, frightening thing. Like we're in such an emergency situation that any urgent action that's consistent, I think, is welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful story. And I look forward to hearing more um, as we progress and get ourselves back into the place we were uh, previously and move beyond that um, on this topic of climate change for sure. All right, folks. So that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on the RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of today of the day. So 
today when I walked in the door, my roommate told me the really sad news that Cicely Tyson passed away. She is a huge icon, um, definitely a woman of grace and beauty, a wonderful artist, uh, definitely somebody that has impacted my life. And um, I don't know if I've said that on the show, but I was a trumpet player growing up. So I knew Cicely, you know, not just from her stuff that she did in her acting, but also as the wife of the late great Miles Davis. Uh, She was really instrumental in helping him get his life back together when he was having some issues and they had a beautiful relationship. Um, So the last track today is dedicated to Cicely and it is a Miles Davis track. It's called Seven Steps to Heaven. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City, and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com forward slash city running tours.